Hello everyone, my name is Haley Elizabeth, and if you don't know who I am, this is my true crime podcast where once a week I sit down and I talk about all things true crime, ranging from murders, disappearances, cults, all the way to the biggest drug bust in history, the biggest bank heist in history, all things true crime. So if you're interested in any of that, you can subscribe and watch the visual version every Wednesday, or you can head over to Spotify, Apple, wherever you can find podcasts and listen to the audio version every Tuesday. Now for today's case, we are going to be talking about the case of Jordan Davis. Now there is a a lot to get through, so we're just going to hop right into it. On Friday, November 23rd of 2012, Michael Dunn and his girlfriend of four years and fiance of six months, 45-year-old Rhonda Rauer, were attending Michael's son's wedding. The wedding was at the Winterborn Inn in Florida, which was about a two-hour drive from Michael and Rhonda's home in Brevard County. Since the event was two hours away and they planned on staying all day, the couple decided to bring their bulldog named Charlie to stay with them at the hotel. Earlier that day, they checked into the hotel and they also checked in their dog, Charlie, and then drove 15 miles to the wedding. The ceremony was beautiful. Everyone cried and laughed and drank. Rhonda had a glass of red wine and two to three rum and cokes, while Michael had three to four rum and cokes in the three-hour span that they were there. Since they did have their bulldog back at the hotel, they needed to leave the reception early and take him out for a walk, and so that's exactly what they did. The couple left the reception, and before going back to the Sheridan Hotel where they were staying, they decided to stop at the gas station to get a bottle of wine to drink later on at the hotel. Michael pulled into the parking lot of the gas station and parked next to a red Dodge Durango. In the car was teenagers Leyland Brunson, Jordan Davis, and Tevin Thompson, while the owner of the car, 18-year-old Tommy Storms, was inside of the gas station buying cigarettes. It was a nice day outside, so the boys had their windows down and the music blasting, and it just so happened to be their favorite type of music, which was rap music. When Michael pulled up to the red car, he heard the rap music blasting, and then after Rhonda went inside of the gas station to get the bottle of wine, that is when Michael looked over to the car and yelled out, quote, can you turn that music down? I can't hear myself think. Tevin, who was sitting in the front passenger seat, then turns down the music like Michael said, but Jordan, who was sitting in the back seat, told Tevin to not listen to him and turn the music up. And when Tommy, the driver of the car, got back inside, Tevin and Jordan had told Tommy about what the guy in the car next to them had just told them. As all of them are talking about what just happened and how they had to turn down their music, Jordan starts defending himself and he starts saying things like, we shouldn't be listening to a stranger. If we want to have our music loud, we should be able to have our music loud. Like, he can't tell us what to do. And as he's talking about this, that is when Michael turns over and yells, to Jordan, quote, are you talking to me? To which Jordan yells back, quote, yeah, I'm talking to you. In the court documents later on, there was a man by the name of Witness 7 that explains the next portion as a witness statement. This witness then says that he indeed did hear the Red Durango playing loud music, but he chose not to park next to them because he, quote, didn't want to deal with it. He says that he goes into the gas station, and then when he comes out of the gas station, he hears Michael yell out, quote, no, you're not going to talk to me this way. It was in that moment that Michael reaches into his glove box, takes out a gun, cocks back the gun, and begins to open fire at the Red 
Durango parked next to him. At this time is when Rhonda walks out of the gas station because she hears the gunshots. Within three minutes of Michael pulling into the gas station, he was able to create an argument with innocent teenagers just enjoying their music and minding their business and then open fired 10 rounds into the car. The first three shots were in the back passenger side door before Tommy immediately hit reverse. The fourth shot had missed the car, but shots five, six, and seven hit the front passenger. As the car was driving off, Michael got out of his car and fired three more shots into the back of the car, all within four seconds. And although Tommy's quick thinking to reverse out of the parking lot saved the lives of his friends, unfortunately, 17-year-old Jordan Davis had been shot three times and bled to death in the back seat. Jordan was shot in his leg, his lungs, and his heart, causing him to bleed out and pass away in just 45 seconds. Rhonda runs outside and Michael tells her to get in the car immediately and she does so. As they're driving back to the hotel, Michael had told Rhonda that he had hit the car a couple of times but he didn't actually harm anyone. He told Rhonda that the kids were threatening his life and were intimidating him and so that is when he had to defend himself. They got back to the hotel where Rhonda and Michael grabbed a pizza as Michael drinks a stick rum and coke before going to sleep. Rhonda says that when they got back to the hotel, Michael seemed very out of it. He seemed very closed off and the two of them barely spoke to each other that night. The next day on Saturday, November 25th of 2012, that is when Rhonda, while she's getting ready in the hotel, she turns on the news and that is when she saw a red SUV getting towed and hearing buzzwords such as, quote, loud music, shooting, convenience store, and one person dead. Michael sees this and immediately tells Rhonda to get in the car, grab the dog, and they need to go home right now. The couple then drove two hours back home straight all the way through, and Rhonda said that throughout the two-hour car ride, they just sat in silence and just listened to the radio. But every once in a while, Michael would turn down the radio and say, quote, I love you, and Rhonda was just sitting crying in shock of everything that was going on. When they got back to their home in Beverd County, that is when Rhonda and Michael were called to the station for questioning. Apparently, the police were able to find Michael quite quickly because after the whole incident, a bystander who had witnessed the shooting quickly wrote down Michael's license plate number and gave it to the police shortly after they arrived at the gas station. As far as Michael's interrogation, it started on Saturday at 4 p.m., 22 hours after the shooting. So, obviously, Michael now knowing that he had killed someone and may have a murder charge on him, Michael does all in his power to try to switch the narrative and lie and exaggerate and this whole interrogation and how he treats the situation is so infuriating to watch. You can actually watch the full interrogation on YouTube. It's about three hours long but if you don't want to sit through the entire interrogation, I'm just going to give you the main points of the interrogation. In the first half, he actually started out his statement being very truthful. He said, 
that him and Rhonda pulled into the gas station right next to the red SUV that was playing loud rap music. He said that while Rhonda was inside, he told the kids in the car, keyword kids in the car, to turn down the music, and they did. When he realizes that the kids did indeed turn down the music, he rolls up his window, and as his window is rolled up, he can hear, quote, kids saying things such as F him, F that, followed by the music being turned back up all the way. Michael then rolls down his window and says, quote, are you talking about me? When Michael says this, he's referring to when he heard earlier the kids saying F him, F that. But at this point, Michael seems very fidgety when he's explaining this portion. He's only looking at the ground, he's stuttering, as if he's sort of making up the next parts of this story as he goes along. He says that after he tells them, quote, are you talking about me? And the young man in the back seat replies with, quote, yeah, I'm talking about you. At this point, he starts to hear the kid in the back seat mumbling things such as, quote, kill him and kill that bitch. Michael then says that as he's staring at the boy in the back seat, he sees the boy go down on the ground and pull up a long stick, but at the end of the stick, he could have sworn he saw a barrel, as if this man had pulled out a shotgun from the back seat. Now, this is very odd to police because... First of all, they checked the car. There was no weapons in the car, but also a shotgun? Like, I don't know of anyone who isn't in a Western cowboy movie that just carries around shotguns. Usually, if you were one to just carry a gun around, you would typically carry around something that is easy to carry around, not a full-blown shotgun lying on the ground. But nonetheless, Michael continues to tell this, and again, you can clearly tell as you're watching this interrogation that he's just making up these things as he goes along. And then as he's explaining the incident where he has to pull out his gun out of his glove box and he begins to open fire at the car, he kind of flexes a little bit and says that he has friends in the military who has taught him how to shoot a gun properly and that's why his motions from grabbing the gun in the glove compartment to actually shooting at the car was very quick and swift and fluid. Those are all words that he used. And then he follows up after talking about his gun skills. He then says that he was very traumatized and was, quote, shitting bricks and says it was a very traumatic moment. And with a traumatic moment like this, you would think that you would recount with emotion or fear, especially if this just happened 22 hours hours ago, your feelings are very fresh, especially if you had gone through a near-death experience. But while Michael is explaining this story, he weirdly explains it with ease. He takes long pauses for critical thinking and even adds compliments to himself about how swift his gun movements were. He shows no emotion or fear when talking about when he thought he saw a shotgun. Michael then starts to victimize himself, saying, 
saying that since he was in a strange town and a strange area, he was two hours away from his home, he didn't know how this neighborhood was. And so he started shooting out of fear that there was another car coming after him. In his interrogation, Michael says that he only shot the car four times, but we will later find out after police had analyzed the car that there was actually 10 rounds shot into the car. Michael also repeats throughout his interrogation saying how scared he was and how scared for his life he was just to basically ensure that the police are sympathizing with him. Well, the police then ask Michael, well, where did you go after the shooting? Because a near-death experience like this, very traumatizing, the first place you want to go is the police station, especially if you are in a position of innocence and you feel like you are actually acting out of self-defense. But instead of calling the police or going to the police station, Michael just says, quote, no, we went back to the hotel, just, you know, waiting for another carload of thugs to come. I've never been so scared in my life. If Michael felt like it was all self-defense and he had nothing to hide, he would have gone to the police, but he didn't. He went to the hotel and crossed his fingers that it would all disappear. If you were scared for your life, calling the police would be the first thing you would do, especially if you are staying at a hotel where the public can easily go in and out as they please. Wouldn't it make sense to call the police to at least have an officer guarding your room just in case something happens? But instead, Michael didn't do any of that. He went to the hotel, he walked his dog, he had pizza, he had a drink, as if nothing had happened. When Rhonda was interviewed by the police, they asked her if Michael had brought his gun up to the hotel room because if Michael was as scared as he said he was, his first priority would be protection. And since he, as we've seen, uses his gun for protection, it would make sense why he would bring it up to the hotel room. But Rhonda said that Michael never brought his gun. And furthermore, when they got to the hotel, Rhonda told them that they went for a walk around the block to walk their dog. And so Michael, apparently scared for his life, decided to go outside, walk around the block, grab a pizza while he's just outside, defenseless, in the open. That's not something someone does when they are terrified for their life. But contrary to Rhonda and Michael's interrogation, Rhonda, when asked, she said that they did go around and walk around. But when Michael was asked this question, he said that they just stayed in the hotel room that entire night because they were too scared to leave. And so the police definitely caught him in a lie just now. He's starting to slip up. That's when the police slowly start to turn up the pressure. The detective's line of action is basically just to get Michael feeling as panicked and pressured as possible to hopefully get him to say some details that he wasn't supposed to say. They start asking him to repeat his story. Can you take us from the beginning to end once more, just so we know that we have all of the details? And so as he starts to tell his story once again, the police are getting a little bit more specific, asking him, what did the kids look like? What kind of gun did they have? What kind of gun did you have? How could you tell that the object that was brought to the boy's chest from the ground was indeed a shot? 
shotgun? How could you tell that it was a barrel if you were sitting in your car? And as Michael is being asked more and more of these calculated questions, he's unable to keep up with all of his lies and he slowly starts to forget what he had said and what he hasn't said. And at this point, the police aren't just asking him questions about the scene, they're also asking him questions regarding his behaviors about the situation, such as if you thought the man in the car had a shotgun, why didn't you pull away? Why was your first instinct to make the decision to grab your gun, take it out of the glove compartment, place it in your hands, and then start shooting? That whole exchange is a lot longer and a lot more calculated than if he were to just reverse and drive away from the situation. Michael, at one point in his story, also stated like when he was reenacting how he had gotten the gun from his glove compartment, he said, that he actually had two hands on the gun instead of one. Now, the reason why this is important is because when you have your one hand on a gun, usually that means that you are scared, you have a loose grip on the gun, you're not really thinking, but two hands on the gun is a lot more calculated, it requires a lot more thought, and it also means that you are purposely trying to aim instead of openly firing. So, when he's being called out for this, Michael switches his story and says that the only reason he shot at the car and why he was the first to shoot was because the boy in the back seat was about to get out of the car. The boy they're referring to is Jordan, by the way. Police told him that Jordan was shot while sitting in the back seat. He was not about to get out of the car. When they analyzed the car, the car door was not open. So now that Michael knows that the police had analyzed the red Durango, he then switches his story back to the original one and says that actually he wasn't about to get out of the car. It just looked like he was about to get out of the car. But this theory was later proven wrong based upon the angle of the bullets through the door as well as the exits and entrance wounds found on Jordan's body. It proved that Jordan was not about to get out of the car and also the angle at which the bullets were fired at through the door was an angle that you could only hit if the car door was closed because if you have the car door open, the angles are going to be different. And then the detectives also called him out and said that if someone was going to shoot you, like for example, if Jordan planned on shooting Michael, he wouldn't have gotten out of the car to shoot him, especially if they were parked right next to each other. That makes absolutely no sense. And even Michael himself, he shot the car from his own vehicle. Michael didn't have to get out of his car in order to shoot the car. And so the detectives are telling him this and saying it just makes no sense as to why someone would get out of the car just to shoot them if they are within two feet of one another. And Michael's response to this was, quote, I mean, he's getting out of the car after repeatedly telling me that he was going to kill me. So, is he going to bite my ear off or shoot me with a shotgun? I wasn't too concerned about how he intended to do it. Now, that last part where he says, I wasn't too concerned about how he intended to do it, that's very odd because in a near-death experience and if someone is holding a gun, a shotgun, two feet away from you, 
you are going to absolutely be concerned about how they intend to kill you. And so when Michael explains his story again, he changes his story a bit by saying that Jordan told him multiple times that he was going to kill him. Just five minutes ago, Michael said that the boy, Jordan, only said it once, saying, quote, I am going to kill you, bitch. Michael said that Jordan only said it once, but now that Michael is going under pressure, he's being asked all of these questions that he didn't really prepare himself to answer, he is now making up more parts of the story to further victimize himself and have himself looking like he was just acting out of self-defense. The detectives at this point are coming down more on Michael and calling him out on the lies, saying that they talked to the other boys in the car, the three other boys, and they all said that yes, Jordan was saying things to Michael such as, quote, go F yourself, F this guy, and just kind of going back and forth with him. It's understandable because Jordan was a child. He was a 17-year-old boy, and usually teenagers, when they're out on their own and they're with their friends, they can be hot-headed or rebellious, especially when a stranger or an adult is telling them what to do. That's just regular teenage behavior, but his friends said that at no time did he ever threaten to kill Michael. It was just general bickering about the volume of the music. And when the police analyzed the car, they found no weapons in the car. And when they looked at Jordan's track history, they found that Jordan, nor did Tevin, or Thomas, or Leyland have any criminal record. They were simply just four kids hanging out with each other listening to music. So it would make no sense as to why Jordan would threaten this man's life when he has no weapons and no history of violence. Jordan was a high school boy from Jacksonville, Florida, and was described by everyone as funny and kind. He was a part of his school's ROTC program and planned on going into somewhere in the military after high school. His friends and his family described him as very loyal. He had a very close relationship with his family, like his mother, his younger brothers, and his father. Jordan had never been to jail. He had never gotten into fights. For a big portion of his life, he was actually homeschooled. And his criminal record was clean, which makes sense because, as I said, since he was in a military program at his school, I'm assuming he had plans of joining some division of the military, and in order to do so, you need a clean record. And so it seems like Jordan was purposely trying to get out of trouble to follow his dreams of becoming something in the military. The detectives say that these weren't violent kids. None of them were violent. Jordan and his friends had just spent the day at the mall. It was beautiful outside, so they were just hanging out and they pulled into the gas station real quick so that Tommy could go inside and get some cigarettes before Jordan went home to his loving family. Detectives also point out how could Michael even hear that the boys were talking about him? Because remember how I said, Michael said that after the music was turned down, he then rolled up his window and through his window, he could hear the kids having conversations and saying F him, F this, and even threatening to kill him. But how could Michael even hear these threats of violence if the music was so loud he could barely think? Michael throughout the interrogation says things like, quote, I don't want to lose my freedom and quote, 
I have so much going on in my personal life. The last thing I want to be in is trouble. I don't want to cause you guys a sleepless night. And from those quotes alone, it seems like Michael is more concerned with himself and his freedom and has no sympathy for murdering an innocent 17-year-old kid. As far as Michael's demeanor throughout all of this, Michael has no reaction when the detectives tell him that he just took the life of an innocent 17-year-old kid that was just hanging out with his friends after a day at the mall. So as the police are trying to put more of this guilt onto Michael, Michael's conscience, Michael then digs himself further into his hole and follows up by saying, quote, I don't mean to sound like an asshole, but if it happened again tomorrow where a shotgun was coming up, I think I would do the same. I would hope that I would do the same. He literally just admitted that if given the situation again, he wouldn't change anything. He would still kill a young, innocent boy. The detectives then tell Michael that there was no weapons in the car. There was nothing found that even resembled a gun or resembled a barrel. Michael follows this up by saying, quote, he was saying things to me like, I'm gonna kill you, bitch. You're dead. Now, the key word from that quote is like. When you go through a traumatizing moment like that, especially a moment that only lasts three minutes, you're going to remember the exact quotes that were being said, not the general idea. Michael says that he heard the boy saying things like, I'm gonna kill him, like, F him, F that, I'm gonna kill him, but he doesn't say that that is exactly what the boy said. It was at this point where the detectives start to pull out crime scene photos and show Michael that no, you didn't just shoot the back door, there were shots found in the front door and the back trunk, so clearly your intention was not self-defense, but Michael, although he is being proven wrong, he stands by his point and said that it was incomplete self-defense. But at this time, the police do have enough evidence to arrest Michael and charge him with the murder of Jordan and three counts of attempted murder for Tevin, Tommy, and Leyland. When Michael told that he was being arrested for these charges, all he said was, quote, the way I see this, I was scared for my life and I fought back and you guys are seeing this as murder. Again, showing absolutely no sympathy for murdering an innocent young boy. He has no sympathy for the parents. He doesn't even ask anything about the child. All he says is, quote, do I need a lawyer? Because I feel like I'm in deep shit right now. The detectives do say that if he wants a lawyer, he is definitely eligible for a lawyer. Then Michael asks what his bail is or his bond is, but the detectives assure him that there is no bail and there is no bond because in the state of Florida for murder charges, you are not given bail or bond. And for some reason, Michael tries to argue with them and says, quote, is it automatic that it's a murder charge when it's self-defense? 
But the detectives explain to him that they have a team of people. They have a team of police officers. They have the state attorney's office. All these very, you know, educated people who analyze the case, analyze the crime scene photos, interview witnesses, interview others involved. And after careful consideration, they are able to make a decision on what should be charged and issue an arrest warrant. So no, this wasn't just the police seeing this as murder. This was definitely murder. And at the end of the day, there was no weapon in the car. None of the kids had a violent track record. And Michael, at one point in the interrogation, says the most infuriating thing. When the police tell him that he's being arrested, there is a long pause and Michael just says, quote, I didn't know I was being charged with murder and attempted murder. That sucks. And like says it in the most monotone and calm voice. Michael was indeed arrested and charged that same exact day with murder and three counts of attempted murder and stayed at the Duval County Jail for 14 months awaiting trial. His trial came up and Michael spoke his side of the story. At his trial, he tells the same story to the jury that he told the police, but now there was new details added. One of the new details that Michael added was that he said that the boys in the car were not just threatening to kill him, but were also calling him Cracker. And when he's explaining these like recounting of moments, he explains it with confidence and with conviction. He says, yes, this was violent. They were attacking me. They threatened my life. And in a moment of, you know, fear, I acted as if how I felt I should act out of self-defense. But but kind of embarrassing for Michael, the court shows the interrogation footage of him being asked those same exact questions and compared his answers. And it was clear that Michael had just made up these new things because the difference between the interrogation footage and the trial that he's currently at is that in the interrogation footage, the incident had happened 22 hours before. At the trial, it had happened 14 months before. So it would make sense if you would remember more 22 hours after the incident versus 14 months after the incident. It was clear that Michael was making up new details to make himself seem more like a victim. He continues to add new details to the story and says that Jordan, as he was getting out of the car, didn't say, quote, I'm gonna kill you, as Michael told the police in his interrogation. He changed it up and said that as Jordan was getting out of the car, he instead said, quote, this shit's going down now as if to imply that Jordan was going to do something violent to Michael, which again makes no sense because Jordan was not armed. After Jordan says, quote, this shit's going down now, that's when Michael responds with, quote, you're not gonna kill me, you son of a bitch. And then that's when he goes over, grabs his gun, and starts to open fire. But after Michael goes up to the stand, he says his story, Leyland, who was in the car, he was in the back seat sitting next to Jordan. Jordan, he goes up to the stand and says his version of events. He says that in his version of events, there was no threatening of lives. There was no one saying, I'm going to kill you. He did say that Jordan was a little mouthy. Jordan did say, quote, go F that guy, turn up the music. I'm not listening to a stranger on how loud I want my music. So Jordan was going off a little bit. He 
was a little bit frustrated that this stranger told him to turn down his music when all he was doing was having a good time, like he wasn't hurting anyone. So he did say some comments, but he never spoke to Michael at all. He never directed the comments at Michael. Michael was the one that rolled down his window and told Jordan, are you talking to me? Implying that Michael was indeed the one to start the argument. And then when Jordan replies with, yes, I'm talking to you, without hesitation, Michael reaches into his glove box and grabs out a gun. The witness that I was talking about earlier named Witness 7, he was also at the trial and he said that when he exited the gas station, he heard Michael yell, quote, nope, you're not going to talk to me that way. And then after that is when this witness started to hear and see the gunshots. So then after the car had drove away, Michael was asked about what he did afterwards. He said that at this point, that's when Rhonda came out of the gas station because she had heard the gunshots. And as he's talking about Rhonda, he starts getting very emotional and he starts crying because he says that he loves Rhonda and he just wanted to protect Rhonda. But it's very odd to the jury that Michael is crying about his love for Rhonda, but when he explains the instance of murdering someone in front of that boy's parents, because Jordan's parents were at the trial, Michael shows absolutely no emotion. But when it comes to Rhonda, that's when he starts tearing up. It seems like he's just caring more about him and his personal life than the actual well-being of everyone involved. Rhonda then also took the stand and I honestly have to give Rhonda props. Rhonda, in this situation, you would think that she would try to cover for Michael, but she does not. She tells the jury the truth and when she is asked if Michael ever mentioned to her on the ride to the hotel, at the hotel, on the two-hour drive home, if Michael ever mentioned that there was a gun or some sort of weapon in the other car, and Rhonda just said no to all of those questions. She said no, he never mentioned there was a weapon, he never mentioned he saw a barrel, he never told me that there was a gun, and this basically proved that Michael possibly didn't see a gun at all, because if his intention of shooting was because he saw a gun, that would be the first thing he would tell Rhonda. And then on February 15th of 2014, that is when Michael was found guilty for the murder of Jordan Davis and three counts of attempted murder towards Tommy Storms, Tevin Thompson, and Leyland Brunson. He was given a 90-year sentence, but seven months later, on October 1st, he was given another life sentence without possibility of parole, ensuring that he will never be let out of prison. So as of 2023, Michael Dunn is still living out his life sentence at the Max Security Prison in Oregon State Penitentiary. As far as the aftermath of everything, Jordan's family has come out to the press. They even did a Rolling Stones interview where they talked about Jordan and they talked about the situation and they basically said, although Michael is locked up, that doesn't really change anything. It doesn't bring him back, but it does offer a little bit of peace of mind. 
And then afterwards, uh, regarding this case, Michael had actually wrote letters to Rhonda from prison, to which some of these letters had been released to the media. And I'm assuming he didn't know that these letters were going to be public information. He probably thought that he was just going to talk to Rhonda because Michael, in his letters, says things like, quote, the fear is that we may get a predominantly black jury and therefore unlikely to get a favorable verdict. Sad, but that's where this country is still at. He also makes another comment saying, quote, the jail is full of blacks and they all act like thugs. This may sound a bit radical, but if more people would arm themselves and kill these N-word idiots, they may take the hint. The only person at fault here isn't with us anymore. It was 100% on Jordan, 100%. I don't even take half a percent. He made that happen. Everything about that was on him. And so, as you can see, Michael, even to this day, still blames everything on Jordan. He believes that Jordan was the reason why he was in jail. But that is just completely not true. Jordan wasn't even talking to Michael. He didn't try to start anything. He was simply just talking to his friends. Jordan wasn't telling Michael to reach for his gun. Jordan didn't tell Michael to park right next to them. Jordan didn't tell Michael to pull out his gun and start shooting him. Jordan didn't even look in Michael's direction when he was talking about him. Why? Because Jordan didn't want a problem. He just wanted to rant to his friends about how frustrated he was that he wasn't able to listen to the music that he liked. Michael's window was up. Jordan didn't ask Michael to roll down his window so that Michael can argue with him. Michael had the choice to easily ignore what was happening and wait for Rhonda to come out so that he can drive safely back to the hotel, but no, he chose to pull out his gun. He chose violence and he chose to continue shooting at the car even though the car was trying to get away. After Jordan was dead, Jordan didn't tell Michael to lie on the stand, thus getting him more time in prison. As for today, Michael is still in prison. He's still serving out his life sentence and it seems like he's going to be there for the rest of his life. But yeah, that is the end of today's story. Um, if you guys found this story interesting, make sure to give it a thumbs up and subscribe if you're on YouTube or if you're on Spotify, Apple, wherever you can find podcasts, make sure to rate it five stars because that really helps me out a lot. And yeah, that is all from me. I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day. Make sure to be safe out there and I will see you guys next week.